You're listening to a Fit Plus Love production. You know, I think my superpower is just like as the race goes on, I fatigue slower than most people. So if you put a big climb at the beginning of the race, I'll get dropped probably by the climbers. But if you put it at the end of the race, I'll be able to keep up with them much more so just because I feel like I fatigue a lot slower than other people. So I think I have just really good endurance. The race is one at the end, not at the beginning. So for me, that's <laughs> that's what I focus on. So, you know, I don't specialize in any one thing, but because I can do all of them well enough, I usually can make it to that final selection. And then then it's kind of, how do I finish? What's, what's the actual finale look like? So I really like to attack. Like I like to go on solo attacks at the end of races. So I'd say that's also my style. I should just try and go out solo and finish alone. So... That was Kristen Faulkner. This is Marnie Salop. Thanks for tuning into my podcast, Marnie on the Move. Each week, I will be inviting interesting, innovative movers and shakers to join me on the show and share their story. You will discover and hear from thought leaders, experts, influencers, and entrepreneurs from the worlds of wellness, sports, beauty, fitness, fashion, and more. Marnie on the Move will feature an eclectic mix of people I know, work with, and think are generally doing cool things. On each episode, I sync up with my guests about life, career, and training, and showcase their expertise and story. Hello, welcome, and welcome back to the Marnie on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Marnie Sallow. I don't know about you, but I am super duper pumped to watch Le Tour de France Femme avec Zwift this weekend, Sunday, July 24th on Peacock. I am equally psyched to bring you today's guest, pro cyclist Kristen Faulkner, who is racing on Team Bike Exchange Jayco and is known as an all-rounder on her team. If you don't already subscribe to Peacock, I highly recommend you do. It will be worth every penny. La Tour de France Femme avec Zwift is a major big deal in women's sports, cycling, and history. You gotta watch. It's gonna be awesome. Before we dive in to today's conversation, shout out to our sponsors, Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker is the ultra personalized nutrition system that analyzes data from your blood, DNA, and lifestyle to help you optimize your body and health from the inside out so you can live your healthiest, longest life possible. And if you're an athlete like me, this is an incredible tool to help you enhance your performance in training and racing. Unique from other blood tests, Inside Tracker transforms your body's data into meaningful insights and an easy to follow, customized daily action plan of the science backed recommendations you need to reach your goals. From foods you can add to your diet, supplements you may want to take or activities you should mix into your lifestyle. Their digital dashboard and app analytics are simple to follow and sync up with your Garmin or Apple Watch or Fitbit. I have been using Inside Tracker now for two years, and it has been a game-changing tool for my overall health and athletic performance. From being dialed in to key blood biomarkers that I personally need to watch, including vitamin D, cortisol, iron, ferritin, and B12, and ones 
that are currently in good standing like cholesterol, glucose, inflammation, and many more. Inside Tracker is offering 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Simply go to insidetracker.com slash Marnie on the move or use our discount code Cheers Marnie. Now, about Kristen. When Kristen Faulkner moved to New York City to pursue her career in finance and venture capital, she thought getting into triathlon would be a fun idea. She already loved running and swimming and was on the varsity teams in high school. She was also on the varsity rowing team while studying computer science at Harvard. Clearly, athletics was in her DNA. Cycling, however, was her weakest link. So she joined a local cycling organization here in New York City to improve her technique and confidence on the bike. This weekend, she's competing in Le Tour de France avec Zouet. For all my local listeners in New York City, New Jersey, Brooklyn, Kristen used to be a regular on 9W and in Central Park. During our conversation, Kristen and I sync up about what she truly loves about cycling, how she went from recreational cyclist and a career in venture capital and finance to becoming a professional cyclist. We discuss our mutual love of Zwift and how she got into e-racing during the pandemic. And of course, we talk a little bit about her love of graveling. I get the scoop on what Kristen, what she's reading and what she does when she's not out on her bike. Kristen and I caught up before the official teams were decided for La Tour de France Femme avec Swift, and she was about to compete in La Tour de Suisse. Since then, she came in second overall final at this race. She had two stage wins at Girodon and came in third overall at Itzulia Women's Stage Race. Now it's time to watch her on the tour. If you like what you hear, leave us a review. It's easy. Head over to your Apple app, click on Marnie on the Move, scroll through the episodes, click on the five stars and leave a review. Also, feel free to share this episode wherever you like to get social, LinkedIn, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, whatever is your jam. Now, on to my conversation with Kristen. It is so great to have you on the podcast today. I'm also really jealous that you live in Girona. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it definitely makes sense to live here, but I also don't want to overhype it. Like, it's, it's, it's not like a, a paradise. But you like... Yeah, no, I do like it. I think it's a great place to have as your first home away from home if you're moving to Europe, just because there's a lot of English-speaking people here, and there's a lot of cyclists, and so you get to know the community pretty quickly. It's like 9W. Uh, yeah, yeah, except a little bit with little better cafes, better cafes, better donuts, <laughs> more better cafes. coffee, more culture. <laughs> yeah, 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 and then a few, few less, yeah, big trucks going by. So just in case time. people are tuning in, we're talking about Girona, my next destination for cycling. I love how you rode from Spain to France the other day, like New York to New Jersey. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Everything in Europe is so close and the countries are so close. It's like little states in a way, you know, riding from one state to the next. I'm from Alaska. So riding riding from one state to the other when I was growing up just seemed absurd. And here I am riding from one country to the other one day. So uh, everything's perspective for yeah, sure. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're born and raised in Alaska. Yes, I was born and raised there. Yeah. And then 
Yeah, I went to boarding school uh, for high school when I was 14 on the East Coast, but then yeah. I would go back every year for summer and Christmas and Thanksgiving. So Alaska is very much my home and my parents are still there. So That's great. I just met a woman from Alaska who is a Brooks ambassador and she was so cool. She's also a pilot. She's a runner. She does endurance events. And I'm going to have her on the podcast. But she was just so interesting. And she, you know, she said she had to learn how to fly so she could like get out of her town. Like, yeah, yeah, Yeah. there's a lot of towns in Alaska that are not accessible by road. So the only way to get there is to fly. (laughs) Living in New York City, that sounds really nice. Right. And yeah, it's 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 funny. It's like the grass is always greener. But when I moved to New York City, I think there were more people on my square block than in my entire hometown back home in Alaska. And I think there were more people on the Upper East Side than in all of Alaska, or there's something like that, like more people in Manhattan or something. But yeah, it was, it was crazy. It's so funny. It's true. The grass is always greener on the other side because it's like, I feel like, you know, I've lived in Manhattan my entire life and I've traveled and I've gone to Europe and I've been to other places, but at the end of the day, this is where I live. And there's Mm -hmm. some fantasy in my mind of like, you know, what it would be like to live in Alaska or you know, in Girona or, you know, somewhere where I could just walk out my front door, get on my bike and skip potholes, traffic lights, people, (laughs) dogs, strollers, you know? Yeah. But then I know like there's, you know, I get to get food in the middle of the night just next door at the deli. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to deal with siestas when everything's closed from 2 to 5 p.m. every every day. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. yeah, So it's a, it's a trade-off. So dial me in because I mean, you know, we're talking about trade-offs and New York city and Alaska, and you are a professional cyclist and you're crushing it right now on your team. I'm following you on Instagram and, but you weren't always a professional cyclist. You went to Harvard, you, you studied computer science, you, Grew up in Alaska, then moved for boarding school, for high school to Massachusetts, then went to Harvard, then moved to New York City, then moved to San Francisco, and now you're in Spain. So, you know, parallel to that, you were working in, like, the corporate world, and then you got into pro cycling. So take me through this journey of yours, and how did you get into cycling? Yeah, it'd be a pretty roundabout life path for people who don't know me. Uh, Yeah, so I've always been really into athletics and sports. You know, growing up in Alaska, that was kind of what we did after school. It was, I did multiple sports, swimming, cross country, you know, everything. And then when I went away to boarding school, that's where I learned how to row. So I became a rower in the spring in college. And then I also was a swimmer and, and a cross country runner. And so throughout college as well, I was a rower. And then when I moved to New York City after college, I really missed being part of a team and I missed that athletic outlet. And I was working a pretty competitive job and I just really wanted to be on a team, like do a team sport. And then also being in New York City, I needed to get outside every day and just feel that greenery, feel the wind on my face, you know, something other than tall buildings. I actually went for an introductory woman's clinic to learn how to ride my bike. And I borrowed a bike that was my boyfriend at the time. He was over six feet, I think six foot three and this really big bike. And I showed up in sneakers and running shorts and had no idea what I was doing. And running sunglasses and short socks and all that. Was it New York City Cycling Club? It was CRCA, actually. So Century Road Cycling Association. Yep. And they're kind of the big umbrella organization. And and they had a women's only clinic and a bunch of volunteers came out. And so, you know, cycling can be a pretty inaccessible sport, but at the time it was actually quite accessible. I mean, financially it cost money. Um, I was able to borrow a bike and and other things and wear sneakers instead of all the expensive gadgets. It was pretty accessible and that they had this women's clinic and 
then they had us do a sprint and this woman came up to me and she's like, Hey, you should try out for my team. And I was like, what's a team? I didn't know that they had teams. And it's like, you know, well, I, I kind of knew it because I, I knew it was more of a team sport than running. But then the more I learned about cycling, I, I just was like, this is great. It's like both a game and a race. And it just, it's intellectual, but physical, it's endurance, but it's, you know, it's everything. And so I joined that local team and I just did some local races and kind of moved up from cat five to cat four to cat three and, and made my way up. And then, yeah, just, I, I kind of just dove into it really quickly you know I I do everything pretty intensely when I decide yeah. to do it I don't really half ass anything like I'm either all in or not yeah I'm the same way I'm like all in or I'm not in yeah and maybe that's like a New York personality I don't know I think it's an <laughs> athletic mindset too though I think it's like yeah. the same I think it might be the same it's like you're a type it's a like a competitive type yeah, a person totally. yeah as soon as I started I like wanted to be really good you know and so yeah I just started going to races every weekend and went on rides with my teammates and then yeah, just got better and better. And then when I moved to California in 2018, I kind of picked up where I left off and started doing some local races and yeah, I would travel almost every weekend to do races. And then through a local group ride, met Linda Jackson, who is the founder of Typical Silicon Valley Bank, which is a US, it was a pro Conti team at the time. And she invited me for coffee. I spoke with her and then that's how I ended up joining Tipco. So it was kind of just, yeah, go to an introductory clinic, do some races, get better. And then, you so know, where were you somehow were you recreationally riding? Like, were you riding on Yon W and Central Park when you were living here? Like, did you do that whole yeah, thing? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. In fact, yeah, I would wake up. We had practice at 5 a.m. in Central Park with my team. So That's I'd like wake up at 4.15. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, um, yeah, we'd wake up at, I'd wake up at 4.15 every morning and go train with the team and then come back, you know, shower, get ready for work, be at work. And then in the wintertime, yeah, I was on the trainer every day. So, yeah, did the 9W. In fact, the first time I ever rode 9W, I think it was maybe, I don't know, a 50-something mile ride. And I'd only ever done laps around Central Park. And so... I think we were 20 miles into it and I was like, oh, we must be done by now. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and then we stopped for cake and and yeah, they said we were halfway through and I was, I was like, oh man, I don't know if I can make it home. I am so tired. <laughs> so I always think back to that moment whenever I'm having like a hard moment in training because I'm like, okay, I remember when I couldn't do more than 20 miles, you know, without being worried that I wouldn't make it back. So is there a middle ground with cycling in terms of like getting into it since you started here in the city with the cycling group? Yeah, I actually do. Um, you know, I think the first thing is riding, going on group rides because that's where you really learn a lot of the bike handling skills where yeah. the speed isn't as fast as a race. People aren't out to do anything at all costs to win. You know, it's just, everyone wants to be safe. Everyone wants to be, but you also learn, you can learn pace lining. You can ride with other people. Um, you can sometimes sprint for the town signs, you know, you can do a lot yeah. of fun things. And I think, um, that was really helpful for me in the beginning because I would, we would actually practice, I would practice with my team. And that's something that not all teams do. Like when I moved to California, we didn't practice together. We'd sometimes go on rides on the weekend. But when I was beginning, starting out, that was really helpful is to just have experienced riders and I could get on their wheel with a safe wheel. And I'd just do group rides all the time in, in um, Central Park and then also on the weekends. So I think that's a good one. And then, you know, slowly and progressively do larger group rides. So about going from, you know, maybe five people to 20 people to 30 people, you know, and, and doing bigger, bigger rides. Um, I think the second thing is um, doing races. Um, sometimes the climbing races um, are actually a little safer because you're yeah. going at a slower pace. And so you're going uphill and it's very different from say a crit race where the speed is really, really high. Right. So um, I think if you do a race that is, 
you know, more climbing or the roads are really wide. Um, and maybe it's a really longer, like a long race or a grand yeah. fondo, then the speed's just going to be slower. And so the, the risk of crashing is, is not as severe, um, or at least if you do crash, it won't, yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe the damage would be less. And then I think the last thing is that, you know, if you can try to ride with more experienced riders, um, who are used to riding in groups and used to riding in pace lines and who you can learn from because a, they're a safer wheel and, and B, they can also teach you how to be a safer wheel. So, um, yeah, riding with people who are used to riding a lot, I guess yeah. would be another one. I was riding with a coach in the city, a friend of mine, Anne-Marie Miller. I'm sure you know Anne-Marie. Well, mm-hmm. yep. She's like faster than most men on 9W. She's like, such a great athlete I was it was great because I was like she was coaching me on like getting on her wheel because I'm a triathlete we have Mm -hmm. to ride six feet apart in most Ironman races at Mm -hmm. least and I usually ride by myself because I don't stop for donuts or lunch and you know all the cyclists are like relaxing having a nice day I mean not all of them but yeah that's the vibe and so it's so different and I felt like you know riding with her I felt like I could tell, like I would be great in a Peloton and I would, <laughs> I'm not worried about being close to people on the bike. Like I have great handling skills. I just think I've met a lot of women out on 9W recently who have just started cycling and her, who are doing like the cycling clinics in Central Park and, and they say it's great. So I think it's a great advice is like if you want to get into racing or just group riding, right? Like or doing these centuries, we share that mission of like wanting to get more women out on the road on bikes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the kind of progression I mentioned earlier was a bit of how to progress your skills, you know, yeah. go from, you know, right on your own to, to small groups, to big groups, to grand fondos, to, to races. Um, but also there's an intermediate, like if you're just looking to fill like a competitive drive as well. So maybe you ride on your own and you you don't want, you want to hit, get a power meter and you want to hit certain power numbers, or maybe you want to go for Strava QOMs and you can yeah. go for the Strava QOMs, you know, or you can join a Grand Fondo, which isn't really a UCI race, but you know, it can still be competitive and you can do mass start races. And, and so I think you can also kind of get out that competitive drive early on and, and really work on that and have fun and without kind of being in the, in the hustle and the bustle of the Peloton, if, you know, that is scary. And was there a, a time in your career where you were a sort of half corporate like having your job and then half pro or no, actually. So I was racing at the amateur level when I live in New York. And then when I moved to California, I raced for a year at the amateur level, a year and a half. And in 2020, that is, well, that was my first year as a professional. And it was also, I was working full-time at venture capital as an investor. Okay. Um, and that was really challenging. So that was the most like busy year probably of my life. Um, yeah, I'd wake up at 6am every day, sometimes a little earlier if I had a commute and yeah, days I would wake up at five, go train for two to three hours, get to work, um, showered, you know, looking ready to go to a meeting, not just, you know, showing up to be on my computer, but ready to meet with CEOs and investors and know everything about their company be up to date, you know, everything well-researched, um, starting around 8 30 AM. And some days I'd stay at the office past eight. Um, and then, drive home, wake up the next day and do it all again. So I didn't have much time for a social life that year. Um, interestingly, that was also when COVID hit. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, I, yeah, I think, you know, I've always been much more likely to hang out with my friends one-on-one and I don't go out super late. So yeah, it makes sense why I was waking up at 4.30 in New York city as I was 23 year old. But (laughs) interestingly though, 2020 was my first year 
as a professional, I was still working, but it was also COVID. So I did one race. It was a gravel race in 2020 and then COVID hit and all the races were shut down. Yeah. So my plan that, that year originally was to take some Fridays off work and do weekend races in the country, kind of more domestic races, but then everything got canceled. And so I spent a lot of time on Zwift and we actually got into Zwift racing as a team as a way to get our sponsors more exposure. So once Zwift racing happened, we did Tour of the Gila, we did uh, the Tour de France, like all, all these kind yeah. of like Zwift races that were online. And we did those as a team. And then in the fall of 2020, uh, my team invited me to Europe to race. And so then I worked half time and remotely from Europe. And that was, that was actually the most difficult period. It was a two month period. And I was, my first race ever with the team was our dash, which is a six day stage race. And it has, uh, I think it was six days and it has two hour transfers every evening to the race. And so I was waking up at six, responding to emails, uh, responding to emails on the bus on the way to the stage, racing the stage having like a protein shake and a baguette for dinner, coming back, being on Zoom calls. I had a board meeting over Zoom at, I think it was 11.30 p.m. my time while I was drinking a protein shake. And then I woke up at 6 a.m. the next morning to do more emails and, and race. And so that was really hard. And I would not advise that to anybody. I was going to say, did anyone um, know on the on the work side that you were racing as well? Well, my bosses, I, I was really transparent with my bosses about yeah. what I was doing because um, I wanted to make sure I had yeah, that honest communication with them. But I don't know, yeah, if the CEOs and founders I was interacting with exactly knew what I was doing over there. Yeah, it was a two month walk. And yeah, when I came back, I I never, yeah, I never thought being a professional cyclist and having a full time job would seem easy. But when I came back from Europe, and I wasn't in Europe racing, and I was just living in California, then I was like, Oh, this is so much easier. (laughs) So everything, everything is relative. But yeah, I I think the hardest thing, actually, it wasn't just the time management, it was also my first time really being with the team. And I wasn't able to attend team dinners, I wasn't able to do really long debriefs with the team. I was always kind of in my room busy doing work. And I think that was actually the hardest part of it. It's just socially not being able to integrate the way I wanted to. So then when I came back, I knew that, you know, I could be a good bike racer and I can be good at BC. I can be great at either one, but I couldn't be great at both at the same time. And so then that's when I realized that if I really wanted to do cycling, um, I wanted to go all in. And so then I left my job in January at the end of January in 2021. Um, and at that point I had enough savings lined up for my job that I knew I could just last the year. And then hopefully the following year I'd get a higher contract. And so, yeah, it was a big risk. Um, I think in, in the beginning, a lot of people raise their eyebrows, you know, and they're like, you have an amazing job and an amazing life. Like, well, what are you doing? Just like getting up and leaving it like all. And then entrepreneurs hear that. <laughs> like people hear that all the time. Like when you want to start a new business, they're like, why are you giving up your job? And you're like, uh, we are very different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, the thing is, the hard thing was like, I really liked my job. I really liked my colleagues. I liked my boss. Like everything was like, I was really happy there and there wasn't anything that I was being, that was pushing me away. Um, I just knew that being a, you know, I'd been an athlete my whole life and being a professional athlete is something I'd always kind of dreamed of. And I didn't yeah. really think it was possible. And then suddenly at, you know, age 26, so 27, I don't remember how old I was. <laughs> yeah. I had this, this opportunity to do it full time. And I just knew it was either now or never. And, and it just fell right. Yeah. So here I am. It, it is an opportunity, right? And it's a total career change, but it's like, you can always mm-hmm. go back to venture capital and you can always, how is it? for women in the sport in terms of like 
since we're talking about, you know, quitting mm. a job and like, you know, having a very different salary and like winning races, like how does that work for women in the sport? I know it's different than for men, but. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I always thought that I grew up in, not grew up. I always thought that I had put myself into relatively sexist environments. Um, <laughs> computer <capital>. science, you know, <laughs> yeah. computer, computer science, you know, it's a pretty male dominated industry and yeah. definitely was 10 years ago. Um, you know, when I started studying computer science, um, and then venture capital incredibly male dominated even more so when I started. Um, and then when I came to cycling though, it was by far the worst I'd ever seen because it, you know, at least in, at least in venture capital and in computer science, there's not this blatant disregard for the fact that, or acceptance of the fact that women and men just completely earn different salaries in cycling. You know, yeah. there's men that earn 10 times as much as a woman, and there's no woman that earns as much as the highest man. The men had a minimum wage and the women didn't at the time. You know, there's just all of these things, the resources, everything. And everyone was just, it, everyone, I say that yes. the vast yeah. majority of people yeah. just accepted that's how it was and, you know, were okay with it. And even if they weren't okay with the complete lack of equality, they seemed to be okay with some equality, inequality. There was a bit of kind of me coming in as an outsider being like WTF, like what is happening yeah, here? Like, this is not okay. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, a lot of people who'd been in the sport had seen a lot of the progress that had happened in the last five years or three years, you know, in women's cycling. And there has been a lot of progress. And yes. so, they seem to look at things with a very, you know, they were motivated to create change and they were continuing to make change, but they were also somewhat happy with the way things were progressing. And I came in and I was like, this is not okay. Like yeah. there's no part of this that we should be content with, like nothing. And so, yeah, I was pretty, pretty shocked actually when I came um, and still am to a pretty large degree by some of the differences. And, you know, it actually was nice my first year to be on a women's only team. I mean, bike exchange is very, they're really great about treating the women and then the same, like we both have a bus, the women have a team doctor, um, the women all make the minimum wage of the men, or sorry, the, the minimum wage for the women and the men is the same. And, and they're very good that way. But also at the same time, there's things outside their control, right? right that are just like, industry ride, you know? And so having male colleagues on my team and seeing them be paid so much more and treated so much differently and access to just everything and, and, the prize money, like all these things that maybe yeah. are race specific and not team specific, having it so up close is very different from being on a woman's only team where I was just ignorant to a lot of that inequality. And so yeah. coming in on a woman's only team in some ways was nice because I was kind of blinded by all yeah. the things that would have really turned me away yeah. in the yeah, beginning, totally. probably. Yeah. And, and I was able to fall in love with the sport, seeing some of it, but not all of it. And now that I'm deeper into the sport, I see a lot more, but now I'm, I'm, in love with the sport to run away so it's <laughs> i'm here and you know i want to make change all right just dropping in here to give a shout out to our partners athletic greens and ag1 ag1 is an all-in-one nutritional supplement it has 75 high quality vitamins minerals whole food superfoods probiotics and adaptogens it's easy to use just add one scoop to a cup of water daily. It's my go-to for getting in the essential daily supplements that I need. And since I'm always on the move, the travel packs are really my favorite. Adding AG1 to your wellness routine is a small micro habit with big benefits. It's one thing you can do every day to take great care of yourself. It contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals, 
or anything artificial. And it tastes great. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Marnie on the Move. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash Marnie on the Move to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now, back to our conversation. Thanks to Zwift, and this is real, like I'm not just saying this because I love Zwift, but thanks to Zwift, like we're going to have the first big women's tour de France this summer, and that's a really big deal. And, you know, as somebody who's like worked in media for many years, I see like it's all about the eyeballs, right? Like when you look at like Mm -hmm. the NFL or the NBA, you know, those sports are broadcast on major networks and those players make so much money and they get ad campaigns and Nike commercials and, you know, all those things. And and that's the sport, right? Like we're just talking about the sport, like not male, female, but like, you know, that's just like the economy of scale of that sport. Yeah. It's, it's how it's always been, you know, and it's like, you know, uh, it's, you know, the, the world of running, maybe, you know, skiing, those things are a little bit closer to people having bigger salaries and payouts and sponsorships, but, you know, for cycling and it's just, you know, it's more male dominated and always has been. And I wonder sometimes, you know, it does come down to like the broadcast and the eyeballs because that's like kind of what everything comes down to is like your database or your numbers or, you know, so it's like, how do you get the numbers up? How do you get the visibility up? And I think, you know, women are, I'm just, yeah, women are so much more exciting than men. Um, (laughs) Especially when they're like badass road cyclists, gravel cyclists, mountain bikers, there's a lot of room for growth for like women's visibility in this sport as pros to kind of like get out there in the spotlight. And it just takes like a couple companies to like really believe in the sport and make it happen. So that's what I think that's what Zwift is doing. And I'm on a mission to try to highlight like all the cool female cyclists that are competing because everybody knows the men. And if they don't know the men, that's cool too. But I think the women are like where it's at. And I think the sport is such a fun sport to watch. I mean, so much action and yeah. drama and excitement and yeah I mean I think Zwift has done more for women cycling than almost any other organization that ever I'm aware of it at least you know private organization and and yeah I think for sure um yeah I would argue that they've done more than any other group I mean if you look at the viewership of of women cycling my parent you know my, like my parents my family my yeah. friends you know they they were only able to watch my me race in the beginning because of Zwift, because, you know, a lot of races weren't filmed several years ago and yeah. And the races on Zwift were shorter. And so they were able to tune in, you know, and, um, they, the announcers and everything, you know, they learned about cycling through watching racing. Like they didn't understand what is the queen of the mountain and why does it break? Why did it, they let a breakaway go and how does drafting work? And, you know, why do you not just race the hard the whole time? And, um, all these different, um, aspects to racing and the dynamics and the team dynamics. And so they only learned about that through watching it on TV. And it was through watching it and hearing the announcers and learning about it, that they became way more engaged with the sport and they got really into it. And suddenly they started following even more and more. And, um, without that viewership opportunity, they never would have understood cycling. They never would have been able to follow it. And the viewership for men and women was the same on Zwift. And so suddenly when real racing started again, after COVID, 
um, there's a lot of pressure because people said, you know, we were able to watch one race for a while and, and now we can't again. <laughs> and so I think Zwift really did a lot for viewership, which yeah, it catalyzed a lot of other things. And suddenly people were demanding a lot more equality than they did because Zwift had created an equal platform for men and women. I think it's the time too, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think it's just the time. I don't know if it, sometimes I think it's because I live in this world of like endurance sports and I'm so dialed in. But then I hear people that are not in this world talking about it. And I'm like, mm. oh, like people you would never, people that aren't athletic that, you know, have been watching the men's Tour de France. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, you know, there's a women's Tour de France this year. And they're like, really? You know? And yeah. Yeah. So it's, it'll be interesting yeah. to see. I think because that has like the highest profile, like in terms of mainstream, right? Like the Tour de France. Like if anybody knows, yeah. if anybody can name any one cycling race, that's it, right? Like yeah. they might not know Paris Roubaix or, you know, the race that you did or Unbound Gravel or any of that stuff, but they'll know yeah. Tour de France. Yeah, that's true. So I don't know. I mean, I think it's it's an exciting time. Speaking of Zwift, you also are the Zwift E-World US rep. So how did you get into esports? Is- well, actually, so I started racing on Zwift. Uh, started during the pandemic. So actually when I lived in New York city, that was, I remember all my teammates were telling me about Zwift, like everyone's telling me about Zwift. And, um, I was like, okay, I'll try it. And, um, then like on the indoor trainer, it was yeah. really, you know, wintertime in New York. And so that's where I first started Zwift was in New York city in the wintertime inside. But then I found that it was a really, really good way to train that intensity during the wintertime because yeah. it was really hard to you know, get outside. And so it, kept me in shape in the wintertime. It kept me engaged when I was on the trainer because otherwise the trainer can be really boring. I know. Um, I like binge watch movies. I, I'm not on Swift, <laughs> but like if I was just on my trainer. And the thing about New York is if you don't train in the morning, then suddenly Central Park is full of people. And if you need a quick workout, you can't really get out of the city and back no. and do a good workout in two hours. And so Swift was a really great training tool in, in New York City. And then when I moved to California and, and COVID hit, um, I was a big proponent of Zwift and thankfully some races started happening online. But yeah, I think because I worked in technology and because I was a computer scientist, I had a lot more optimism about tech platforms and, yeah. you know, new software and new gaming. And I think there are a lot of people who had been in cycling. There were people with a very traditional mindset, you know, this isn't cycling, this isn't, you know, real racing. And yeah. there was some pushback in the very beginning, but I'm like, okay, so it's not the same as the road, but like everything's different. Like this is a whole new, like this is a whole new style, you yeah. know, a whole new outlet of cycling, like a whole new discipline. And so I was really optimistic about Zwift and really excited when we started, when there was something for me to do, you know, yeah. there was some kind of racing during the pandemic. And then when we started doing races as a team, um, yeah, that was just really fun. And yeah. And then I just, you know, when I go home to Alaska, it's definitely my number one training tool. Yeah. Um, it's the only thing I can do in the winter time. So I just find that, um, yeah, Zwift and e-racing, and it's it, it's a whole different style of training than riding outside. Yeah, and it has a lot of benefits that you can't really get from outside. Even just the erg mode on the trainer, you know, Absolutely. forcing you to do certain power, um, and then you just you can't let up. You know, there's no you you can't there's no stoplights that are going to force you to stop. You know, there's yeah. you just have to be going the whole time, and so the level of mental and physical focus and intensity is just different. And it actually, you really need that. And in the winter time, I can tell if I didn't do any indoor training over the winter, then when my spring starts, I can notice I'm lacking some of that intensity. (laughs) I definitely spend um, a lot of time on the trainer in the winter. It's like, it's like, I, I love it. You know, I love to, because it is, it's very, it's like a treadmill, you know, you're like, you have a specific workout, you hit your numbers, you do the watts that you need to do. Yeah. 
and you can mimic any course that you're training for with all the different, you know, courses in Watopia yeah. or, you know, Macquarie yeah. or any of the places, London, New York on Zwift. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very, very effective, efficient training tool. And it has a great feedback loop. I love the feedback loop when you're riding on the trainer. Yes, that's true. <laughs> so, and yeah. so if you're, if you're a type A person, you might like it. <laughs> yeah, no, I like it. I like it too. Yes. I, I think what I like, I also like the social component of Zwift. I don't know. It's fun for me. I mean, I still am like multitasking while I'm on Zwift, but I'm like not competing. So <laughs> multitasking, yeah, like actually... I'll have like music on in the background or I'll have like a, a show I'm binging, but I'm still dying on Zwift. Like <laughs> I'm still engaged. I really enjoy stories. You know, there I had a friend actually, and his son went away to college and the dad and the son always used to go on bike rides when the son was growing up. And so when the son went away to college, they started doing Zwift rides together. So once a week they would get on Zwift and they would ride together. And just stories like that that make me smile a lot. Yeah, I did. I met <laughs> so. some people on Zwift and did rides with them throughout the pandemic. I feel like Zwift mm. kind of like saved my mental state when it came to exercise and fitness during the pandemic with the bike. Mm. I mean, I'd never been so into the trainer. I've always had a trainer, but as like, a, I always like riding outside until mm. Zwift. I know you also are a gravel cyclist. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about how you got into that and if you like it and where your graveling is leading you. Yeah, I really enjoy gravel racing. You know, I think there's a part of me like the Alaskan kind of off the beaten path, yeah. um, you know, likes to adventure the wilderness, like that very much aligns with my personality and kind of who I am. I originally thought that I was going to be, that I wanted to just stay in the U.S. and do a lot of gravel racing, but I really wanted to compete at the most competitive level. And, um, at the time, you know, a lot of, a lot of the most competitive racers, um, are in Europe doing a lot of these big yeah. races and tours. And so, um, I came over to Europe and I'm not able to do as much gravel racing over here just because our schedule is pretty full with road racing, but I do, uh, you know, I have a gravel bike. I, I go gravel riding and, it's really nice to just, yeah, get off the beaten path every now and then. And I think if I ever leave the world tour, like I'll go back to the U.S. and do, you know, all gravel, those gravel races. Gravel. And so, yeah, exactly. So it's kind of a balance, you know, I, um, I want to be able to do both, but logistically it's really hard because a lot of the gravel scene is in the U.S. And, you know, unfortunately a lot of the European teams, uh, don't give as much credibility to gravel as they do the road racing. And a lot of American gravel racers don't give yeah. as much credibility to some road racing as they do gravel. So in a way, it seems like there's still very separate worlds that don't have a lot of crossover. It seems like people start with gravel and then go to road or they start with road and then they go to gravel. And there's not as many teams willing to let riders do, do both. both throughout the whole season. And part of that's that they, you know, they're not super conducive to each other. Like you need a much bigger, you know, gravel is much more about an endurance engine and road racing. You need to have a lot more punch and yeah. being able to cover attacks like constantly. And there's the team dynamic. And, and so it's a very different style of racing. And so I think if you really want to be world-class at one, then you should be focused on one. Well, that's like the age old concept of like focusing, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I don't think you need to exclusively do one. Like I still think there's a lot of benefits to cross training, doing some, some like doing a little bit of both, but I do think that, that just the way that the system is set up, the way that the race schedules are set up, you know, we don't have a lot of road racing grand tours in the U S yeah. we don't have a lot of big gravel races in Europe. And so logistically as a racer, it makes it really hard to be, um, very, uh, competitive and to be a leader in both at the same time. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean that I don't love gravel and I don't want to do all these gravel races that I see. Yeah. And it just means that there's going to be a time for each. And I tend to do a lot more gravel in the off season, um, yeah. as a training 
I saw some of the pro triathletes do Unbound Gravel this year, like Heather Mm. Jackson, another pro that I had on the podcast. And I always wonder, like, are they doing it competitively? Because when you're a competitive Mm. athlete, people expect you to be competitive at everything you do on the pro Mm. level. And I don't think you have – and you, I'm surprised you're not a triathlete. (laughs) Swimming, running, cycling – it's funny. I actually, uh, growing up would do triathlons, but cycling was my weakest link because growing up I was a swimmer and I also yeah. did cross country running. And so when I moved to New York, originally I went to a introductory cycling clinic because I wanted to learn how to ride my bike because I was considering joining a tri team. But then I, the more I learned about the team dynamic of cycling and the more that I cycled, I just realized I really loved it. <laughs> and I actually enjoyed it a lot more. During the pandemic, I got really into cycling. I always knew that I liked cycling. Like I started riding when I was four. I was mountain biking when I was 18. And I started triathlon 12 years ago. But before that, I always rode my bike like as a means of commuting or recreationally. I mean, I wasn't a road cyclist by any means. I, you know, didn't even have a road bike. I had a mountain bike. I think I had a hybrid. But I love it, you know, and it's it's and so during the pandemic kind of took the opportunity since there were no triathlons, like you said, like you have to focus on one sport. Right. So, yeah, I couldn't get into cycling the way I wanted to in the past or do any centuries because all of my races that were 70.3s, like I had to focus on, you know, doing a 56 mile bike and then running off the bike, not a 70 mile bike. So exciting for me that I didn't have to worry about running off the bike and I could just go for a bike ride and not worry about my time and like enjoy New York and get out. And so I really got into it and now I'm really into it. And I only did one century, but I love it. I love cycling and I definitely want to do some gravel, but I I have so much to do in the world of cycling. One of my mentors, actually professional mentors at work, once said to me that the most valuable employees are T-shaped. which is um, when they're really deep in one area and they're really broad in a lot of areas. And it just shows that, yeah, I think it's important to have a broad set of skills, but then being able to also have some kind of core value that you bring that's unique and that you are really world-class at or a specialist at. So, Yeah. I mean, and are there any other lessons that you get from your work and career that you kind of bring to the sport and vice versa? Oh, there's a lot. There's so many, you know, it's funny. We're all kind of going through life, applying different skills to different settings, but a lot of times it's the same skills. Yeah. I think one is taking calculated risks, you know, in a bike race, you have to be really, really patient, but then when the opportunity comes, you need to go and it's going to, it can be risky, but you need to take it when it's there. And the same is true with venture capital. You know, I would look at there's 20 companies a day and we might do two investments a year. And, um, you know, I would see so many different opportunities and it just wasn't right. It wasn't right. It wasn't right. And to the point when you finally see one that is right, it's almost like you don't believe it. You like have to like, <laughs> you want to like stop and be like, wait, what? <laughs> and, uh, but then you have to jump on it right away. And that's kind of what happens in a bike race too. You know, it's like the opportunities, like patient, patient, you have to wait. And there might be good opportunities that go by, but if it's not great, then you have to be patient. And then when there's the right one, you just have to jump on it. So that's one lesson. Another one is just being able to communicate really well. I think this is like something that I'm a lifelong learner and I, you know, I'm not perfect at communication. I don't think anyone is, but I was striving to get better. And, you know, I'm in, in venture capital. I was really young, you know, I was working with CEOs who were much older than me, way more experienced than me uh, professionally. And I had to speak eye to eye to them. And, and, you know, in cycling, it's, it's a little different, but I have teammates from around the world. We speak different languages. We come from different cultures. The way that we approach communication and team dynamics is different. And so, yeah, just being 
a really good communicator is something that you need in any kind of team environment, whether that's professional or athletic. And yeah, I think the discipline that goes into all of them, the time management, the ability to manage stress, like how do you perform under stress? All of those things, I think, applied to my professional life and my athletic life. And so what what was the, what was your first bike and what are you riding now? First bike, that's, that's a tough question. Yeah, there were a few. So it depends what you define as my first. I think when I was in... Um, fifth grade or something, we, we had a truck bike at home that we bought and I, you know, a flat pedal bike, you know, that's where I, um, so I had a truck bike and then, yeah, the, the ex-boyfriend's bike was a Le Mans, And that's what I used for my first year when I was learning how to ride with clip and pedals. And then my first bike that I ever bought for myself, that was like a real road cycling bike that was a live and it was actually a replica of Marion Ross's bike that she rode that year. Yep. And I got it in New York and yeah, it was a, live envy bike okay. i think um and i really like that bike um so now they i'm also riding bikes. a live so. yeah yeah so now it's a uh, kind of full circle i'm riding a live right now as well so that's nice yeah i'm sure you have multiple sets of wheels for different conditions but like what were your first wheels and you're tall you're tall right like you're i'm five six so i was actually really short for a rower so i was kind of between heavyweight and lightweight rowing because i was like too like a little bit too muscular to be a lightweight, but too short to be a heavyweight. So I was always kind of oscillating between the two. For wheels, you know, we actually, I, I didn't change wheels that much because um, we have our sponsor wheels. So right now we have Kadex wheels from Giant. And in terms of sizes you, though, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I ride 28s on the road. You know, I'm not doing that much off-road right now though. So yeah. I don't know. I don't ride that one. So yeah, I don't change my wheels and my tires that much um because most of the conditions that i'm training in right now are pretty similar so i would say yeah my equipment right now is pretty consistent actually and so are you on tubeless or tubular uh, we ride tubeless yeah did you you love it yeah i do like it a lot you know it's i think it just depends on the kinds of roads you know some people will swear ride tubeless or or not, or, you know, all these things, but I think so much of it depends on the conditions you're riding in. Yeah. Um, you know, I was in Hawaii and there were these little thorns on the road everywhere and I hated having tubeless because it, it would pop it, you know, and they, and, um, they actually were so thick that it wouldn't re- reseal. And so I just needed to change my tube every time or reverse in Hawaii, there were thorns. And so I wanted tubeless. Yeah. Whereas in other roads, uh, you know, say there's uh, a lot of potholes, then you actually are more likely to get a pinch flat. And then it's like, well, you know, so it's just, it depends on the kind of terrain. And I think it also depends on the kind of training you're doing, the kind of riding. I think I've like graduated my bike like two years ago, but I just like haven't upgraded it and I'm upgrading it now. I love my bike. So it's like the perfect, I'm five one. Uh, it's like the perfect bike for me because it fits me, which is like not so easy. Yeah, no, bikes are so interesting because yeah, you know, you can change any component on your bike and you can change all your components and then it's, equivalent to buying a whole new bike because you've changed everything on it so you you know you you can be constantly upgrading you know you can be constantly upgrading it um or you can just say you know goodbye and and buy all new stuff at the same time but um i actually think that's one of the nice things about bikes is that you can upgrade whatever you want when you're ready to upgrade that thing and you don't have to make the huge investment to buy a whole new bike when you just really want to change one thing so yeah they're pretty modular that way yeah i do like that i i do live in manhattan and and have now a collection of old bikes in my and plus one and plus one yeah bikes are also really personal you know like the way you ride the way that you distribute your weight the way you corner the way you turn like everything is just some bikes feel super smooth to some people and other people don't like them and it's just 
I, you know, I, I think there's a side, some people think like some bikes are just better, like some bikes are better than others. And, um, maybe they, they judge that by how much they cost or the material. And I think, you know, it's such a specific thing. It's like a saddle lane in a way, you know, it's so, I mean, the saddle is more personal than a bike, but like, there's so many things that are just personal preference. And, um, I, yeah, I think people don't give enough credit to just, yeah, how it, there's a lot of bikes and one's not better than the other. It's just like, what fits better for you? Like, do you prefer like a long stem or a shorter stem? Like everyone's different. Like it just, it just depends. Um, so it's, that's why it's so important to get fit. And I think that like, you know, and, and over the pandemic, there were a lot of people that got into cycling that, you know, didn't have any education about it. And they just went to their bike shop and got sold a bike that maybe wasn't, you know, the best fit for them, you know, because they weren't doing the custom fit. That's kind of a whole next level, but it really is game changing for your experience on the bike. And it's true. It's like, there are great, every bike could be potentially great, but just not great for you. And so I feel like that's the quest I've been on, right? Yeah. But back to you, what races do you have lined up for, you know, the next few weeks and what are you, what are you competing in? And yeah. In two days, I leave for the Tour de Suisse and that's a four day stage race in Switzerland, uh, which I'm quite excited about. It'll be my first time doing it. And then after that, we have the Tour de France. And then um, I'll probably be doing Battle of the North, maybe Pouet and World Championships. So I think that's next on my agenda for now. There are World Championships. They're going to be in Australia this year. So it'll be uh, it'll be fun because I'm on an Australian team. So I think there will be a lot of excitement and uh, hopefully I'll have more people cheering for me this year at the world championships because yeah that's awesome <laughs> I'll know some people down there so yeah no I'm excited you've been traveling to all these places been to the countries that we're going to to race in Europe but I have never been to Australia so that's cool that'll be a really fun experience for me do you feel like yeah. when you, I know when you're riding and you're competing and racing you're like super focused on like being in that zone but is there any place that you've loved cycling where it's just so beautiful and you're like, I can't believe I'm here. Mm. Oh, so many places. So many places. Um, it could be like training. Yeah, I did a, a ride from Nice to Milan in 2018. Um, it was a multi-day tour and through Interlaken in Switzerland, actually. That's when I just, I was looking at the landscape and I just thought, you know, how is this earth so beautiful? Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's one thing I love about cycling is that you really get to see the world and you know, running, you can get off the beaten path as well, but you just can't see as much as you can cycling. And, and yeah, cycling, you can really just, you can see so much because you can cover a lot of ground and yet you can cycle anywhere in the world for the most part, you know, where there's a road. So, um, or off-road. <laughs> so yeah, I love it for that reason. What's your strong point when it comes to cycling? Like, are you a climber? Are you a sprinter? Are you all those things? Oh, that's a good question. You know, it's interesting. I, I'm a bit of an all-rounder. Like I wouldn't say I'm, like I'm not the best climber. I'm not the best sprinter. Um, but, and I'm not the best time trialist, but I can do all of them pretty well. Um, mm -hmm. maybe not sprinting as much, but, um, you know, I think my superpower is, uh, just, um, like as the race goes on, I fatigue slower than most people. So if you put a big climb at the beginning of the race, I'll get drops probably by the climbers. Mm -hmm. But if you put it at the end of the race, I'll be able to keep up with them much more. So, just because I feel like I fatigue a lot slower than other people. So I think I have just really good endurance. And so, yeah, I guess the race is one at the end, not at the beginning. So for me, that's, <laughs> that's um, what I focus on. Yeah. You know, I don't specialize in any one thing, but because I can do all of them well enough, I usually can make it to that final selection and then 
then it's kind of, how do I finish? What's, what's the actual finale look like? So yeah, that's pretty depends. Cool. But I, yeah. I really like to attack. Like I like to go on solo attacks at the end of races. So I'd say that's also my style. Um, is to just try and go out solo and finish alone. So, so you're like the engine. Yeah. Yeah. More so. That's yeah. cool. You know, off the topic of cycling, are you reading any great books, watching any great shows? Like what are you into beyond cycling? I'm, I'm waiting for the third Ted Lasso season to come out. Um, Ted Lasso always show. coming out. I love that show. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not soon, but I'm just waiting for that. Um, you know, I actually, I'm less of a TV person. I'm more of a podcast person. Let's see. I, I listen to Jay Shetty a lot. Okay. His, um, on Purpose Jay. podcast. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I read books. Um, I've been read. I've been following, trying to read through the books on Reese Witherspoon's like, um, I love uh, her. book list. Uh, she has a pretty good selection, I think, of books that she um, has in her book club. But uh, yeah, I would say. Did you read Where the Crawdads Sing? I haven't read it. It's like one of the few I haven't read yet. And I don't want to watch the movie before I read it. So I haven't watched it yet. But it's yeah on my list. <laughs> I mean, I love what she's mm-hmm. done with her career and her brand and her company and her yeah. books. I mean, yeah, I don't read a lot of fiction, but I would. Yeah. I keep, you know, I want to, but I just... I yeah, her shows on Apple TV were amazing. I really yeah. liked Little Fires Everywhere, and yes. I also really liked Morning the Morning Show. So, um, I think it's Hello Sunshine. Is yeah, that the Hello name Sunshine it? is the name um, of the company. Yeah, yeah, I think she's done a really good job with her production company. So, um, yeah, I think those are just some of the. I, I'm going to Altitude Camp in Andorra um, in two weeks, so. I'll have a lot of free time to watch movies and, and TV shows and read. So maybe if you ask me in two weeks, I'll have more answers for you. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not reading anything specific. I got Priyanka Chopra's autobiography. Oh, I've read her autobiography. It's actually really good. Yeah, she has some good quotes. Yeah, yeah. So I like her a lot. I think she's super cool. Um, and I'd love to have her on the podcast. Good luck with all your racing. I mean, have fun. Maybe that's better. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I can always use a little extra luck. You know, cycling is, there's always a little bit of luck in cycling. So I'll take it all, all you want to give. All right. So. Well, we'll be cheering <laughs> for you at all your upcoming races. And thanks for, for coming on the podcast. And, and yeah, okay. this has been awesome. Thanks. And keep on inspiring all the cyclists out there and <laughs> people that are working in corporate America that feel like this overwhelming drive to escape that life. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks again for tuning in to Marnie on the Move. If you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social at Marnie on the Move for Facebook and Instagram and Marnie Salop on Twitter. Head over to our website, MarnieOnTheMove.com for more